Would you go ahead and take out your Bibles with me? <clears throat> and let's look together at the book of Romans in chapter 8. This morning we'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 12 and we will read through verse 17, uh, Romans 8 verses 12 to 17. But our focus will be verse 15, so give it special note uh, when we come to it. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, this is what we read. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Mount Hermon, the issue in this paragraph is whether or not we are doing the will of God. Obedience is the issue here. Are we resisting temptation, fighting sin, giving ourselves in obedience to God? Paul's primary goal in this paragraph is to encourage us, to spur us on in our obedience to God. He is stirring us up, reminding us that we can now serve our God with joy and with confidence. Because as Christians, we now have the Spirit of God. Isn't that remarkable? God himself has come to dwell in us. This is mysterious. This is marvelous. The Spirit of God dwells in my soul, your soul, if you're a Christian. He abides in you. And the Spirit is abiding in you for a reason. Remember, we are fixer-uppers we are not beautiful palaces in which the Spirit has come to dwell. No, you and I, I dare say, are falling down shacks in which the Spirit has come to dwell. But the Spirit has come into us in order to transform us. The Spirit is going to take us from a shack to a palace, from ungodliness to godliness, he is working to take us from filth to spotlessness. The Spirit has made your heart His home in order to do a home makeover on you. And we are being changed by the Spirit of God as He leads us. One result of the Spirit being in your life is that you should be becoming more obedient to God. More like Jesus, a faithful, humble, willing servant of God. 
Jesus said in John 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what's happening to us if we're Christians. The Spirit is making us a people who increasingly recognize that God is smarter than us, God is wiser than us, God loves us more than we love ourselves, and so we increasingly, happily, humbly submit to Him and seek to do His will rather than our own. But what kind of Spirit have we received? The Holy Spirit who has come into us, what, what kind of obedience is He producing? Is he producing in us an obedience to God that is driven by fear? Or is he producing in us an obedience to God that is driven by love and confidence? Parents, you know the difference in these two. You know the difference between when your child is eager to obey and happiness out of love and when your child is obeying reluctantly because he or she doesn't want a spanking. Which kind of obedience is the Spirit working in us? Obedience driven by fear or obedience driven by love and confidence? Well, Paul in this passage is encouraging us. He is helping us to, to walk with a little bit of a lighter step because he is telling us that the Spirit who is in us is working to create a joyful, confident, bold kind of obedience. Yes, we are to be fighting sin in our lives. We're not to be fighting sin like a scared kid curled up in a corner, swatting at the shadows. No, we are to fight sin like David, marching boldly out to confront Goliath and the strength of his God. Bold obedience, happy obedience, confident obedience. This is what the Spirit is bringing about in the lives of God's people as he sanctifies them. And so I want to unpack verse 15 with four questions. Number one, what is the slavery that Paul speaks of? Second, what role does the Spirit have regarding the slavery? Third, what is this adoption that Paul talks about? And fourth, what role does the Spirit have regarding this adoption. So number one, I want to ask this, what is the slavery that Paul is talking about in verse 15? Um, notice that he uses that word back, or in some translations the word again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, or to fall again into fear. What this tells us is that the slavery that Paul is referring to is something that we used to know. Something that used to be true about us, but which we have now been brought out of. And so what can we say about this slavery? Well, here's my answer. This slavery is to the law of God. It proceeds from the covenant of works. It is common to all natural men and it results in fear and a failure to obey God from the heart. 
Now I'm going to unpack all that in just a moment. So just hear it again. This is my answer to what is the slavery that Paul is talking about. He is speaking of a slavery to the law of God that proceeds from the covenant of works. It is common to all natural men and results in fear and a failure to obey God from the heart. So let's take that a little bit at a time. First, this slavery that we used to know before we were saved this slavery that unbelievers still know very well, it proceeds from the covenant of works. So we got to go way back to Genesis 3. <laughs> anyway, picture yourself in the garden. Picture Adam and Eve. God has created Adam, and God and Adam are now going to have some kind of relationship. What is this relationship going to be like? Here's God, He's created Adam. What kind of relationship are they going to have? How, how are Adam and God going to interact? They're clearly not equals. One is the creator, the other is the created. How are they going to relate? Well, God, because he is God, gets to choose what this relationship is going to be like. And he has a plan and he has a purpose in mind. And so he speaks to Adam. And he tells Adam what their relationship is going to be like. He says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, God says to Adam, I am going to provide for you. I am giving you everything you need to live, survive, and thrive. I have not only made you, but I have given you the Garden of Eden, and you are welcome to enjoy its bounty. You are welcome to live off of its fruit. And there is one tree that you are not to eat from. This tree will remind you that I am God and you are not, that it is I who care for you. And this is how our relationship will work. As long as Adam trusts God and obeys this one command, he will be blessed. But if Adam disobeys this one command, he will be cursed. That's what I speak of when I speak of the covenant of works. It declares that if we obey God, we will be blessed. If we disobey God, we will be rightfully cursed. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. That covenant was made with Adam, but not just Adam. Because Adam was the head of the whole human race. This was a covenant made with all mankind. If we obey God in perfection, we will be forever blessed. But if we sin against him, we will be forever cursed. This covenant remains true for every person in this room, every person on this planet, every person that has ever lived or ever will. Obey God and you will be blessed. Disobey God and you will be cursed. The reason this results in slavery is that Adam fell and so has every one of us and every person that has ever lived except for our Lord. Before the fall, obeying God was possible for us. Before the fall, obeying God was something we could do. It was not too difficult. We could have lived in perfect, joyful obedience. But ever since the fall, our hearts by nature are hostile towards God. 
Our hearts are bent in on ourselves. We want to do our will. We don't want to do God's will. And so now God's commandments are burdensome to us. This is the slavery that proceeds from the covenant of works. It is a slavery to the law of God. I must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And I don't want to be perfect because I like my sin. That's the condition of natural man. And it's not just one commandment anymore. Because God loves us, he has given us many commandments to teach us what is right and what is true and what is happy and healthy for us. The law is meant to keep us from needless harm. God's commandments, God's law is not a bad thing. God's God's law is good. It, It shows us the right way to live. It keeps us from all kinds of problems. But we don't receive it that way. All we know is that God's law crosses our wills. I want to do this and his law says no. I don't want to do that and his law says do it. And so it feels like a burden. Imagine a servant. The master of the house cares for this servant. Every instruction that he gives to his servant is actually for the servant's good. The master is working to bless this servant that he loves. But instead of responding well, the servant hates his master. Every word that comes from his master's mouth is like a dagger to him. The master says, dear servant, do this or go there. And deep down, the servant wants to do the very opposite. Why? Just to spite his master. If the master says, go right, deep down, the servant wants to go left. If the master says, go left, deep down, the servant wants to go right. Sometimes the servant does what the master says, but it's only outward obedience. It's not from the heart. Why does the servant sometimes obey? Because the master has rightly threatened that if the servant disobeys, there will be consequences. Fear keeps the servant in line. And this is how it is with all people by nature. God has authority over all of us. He gives us commands out of love for us. But we don't receive them that way. Our love for sin... Our love for our own wills makes submitting to God feel like forced slavery. And yet people don't act as wickedly as they might because deep down they know there is a holy God to one day they will have to give an account. The partial obedience that we see to God in this world, the reason that it's not utterly chaotic and depraved in this world is that there is an obedience driven by fear. Now, of course, this kind of obedience is actually a failure of obedience. It's failure, first of all, because it's only partial. It's not real. But it's also partial. It's also a failure because it isn't true. You see, God looks at the heart. And even though a servant may be outwardly obeying, even though a person may be trying to live a decent kind of life in this world, God can see down into the soul. God knows this person doesn't really love him, doesn't really receive his commands as a, as a gift of love. This is slavery to the law of God, accompanied by fear. And that is not the spirit we have received. Fear. 
This is our second question. What role does the Spirit have in regards to this slavery? And the answer is this. Sometimes the Spirit of God gives people a heightened sense of their slavery. In fact, this is the way the Spirit leads us to salvation. Before the Spirit brings us to Mount Zion, He must first take us to Mount Sinai. Before the Spirit leads us to Christ, the Spirit first leads us to the law. In other words, the Spirit does sometimes cause people to have a greater sense of God's holiness, to feel an even greater burden of His law upon us, and to experience a greater sense of fear. Dear Christians, do you remember what this was first like for you? Do you remember what it was like for you when the Spirit first gave you that heightened sense of your helplessness before Him? Suddenly you realized that God was not a God you could take for granted. It began to dawn on you that one day you're actually going to stand before Him And suddenly you realize that it didn't matter how hard you tried, how many times you resolved, how much you tried to clean yourself up, you were simply never going to be good enough. His good law was more than your wicked heart could ever obey. And you had that feeling of fear, of utter dread, that you would find yourself cast into hell. In that moment, you realized that you were a condemned man, a condemned woman. You knew you were in trouble. Now, some people experience that for just a few minutes. They're in a preaching service, maybe, and and God brings this conviction upon them, and their knuckles turn white as they grip their seat. They're, They're overcome with fear. And yet, by the end of the service, they are... God has brought them to embrace the gospel and their fears are relieved and they find joy in Christ. Everything has changed. But for many people, this season of spirit-brought fear lasts for weeks, months, even years. Many in church history have given testimony of how long they lived in the fear of God, trying to be good enough, trying to be good enough, but feeling the law upon their backs, knowing they couldn't be perfect. They would go to church week after week and hear about the holiness of God. And then in fear of hell, they would try and be better the next week. They would double their efforts at praying. They would double their efforts at reading their Bibles and seeking to be kind to others. They would try and fight sin. They would try and do right, all out of this sense of dread. And the longer they did this, the heavier the law became. The more they realized their own depravity, they kept falling short. They kept sinning. And then finally, finally, By God's grace, the Spirit calls the gospel to break upon them in glory. They looked to Christ. They depended entirely upon Him. And their slavery was broken. Mount Hermon, the first part of verse 15, is telling you this. The Spirit that now dwells inside of you 
is not working to bring you back into slavish obedience. The Spirit of God is not at work within you to bring you back to what you experienced before your conversion. You are no longer to be praying, reading your Bible, being kind to others, fighting sin out of this sense of fear of God that he's going to strike me with lightning, that he's going to cast me into hell if I don't do these things. What does the first verse of our chapter say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So what is our relationship to God like now that we have come to believe on Jesus? Is it more like an employer-employee relationship? Right? Employees do what their bosses tell them to get a paycheck. Maybe our relationship with God is, is like our relationship to our country. Is it, are we to obey God out of some sort of civic duty? I pay my taxes not because I'm eager to do so, but because I feel an obligation. Is that how we're to relate to God and obey God's commands? No. Mount Hermon, our relationship to God is something far better than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. The spirit we have received is the spirit of adoption. Which is our third question. What is this adoption? Here's my answer. I think it's biblical. I'll unpack it in a moment. This adoption is the legal and spiritual reality that Christians, through the gospel, according to the covenant of grace, now have God as their loving father resulting in joyful, confident, happy obedience. I'll say it again. This adoption is the legal and spiritual reality that Christians, through the gospel, according to the covenant of grace, now have God as their Father, resulting in joyful, confident, happy obedience. Let me hit just a few highlights there for you. First, because we've come to Christ, we no longer relate to God in terms of the covenant of works. No longer is our relationship with God based on our obedience or disobedience. The covenant of works said if you obey God, you're blessed. If you disobey God, you're cursed. According to that covenant, we all deserve hell. But Jesus came in our place and he was obedient for us. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf. And he has now entered into the rewards of having obeyed God perfectly, even when it meant dying on a cross. His Father has now blessed him with tremendous blessings for his obedience. And his blessings are shared with us as his bride. The righteousness that Christ accomplished is accounted to us the moment we believe. When we believe on Jesus, his merits become our merits, legally speaking. The F's on our report card taken away. The punishment was born at the cross. The A pluses on Jesus' report card are placed on ours because of our union with him by faith. It's all grace. The covenant of grace says that God will have mercy on everyone who looks to him in humble faith. 
Just as the covenant of works has the law, the covenant of grace has the gospel. And every person who believes on Jesus is made right with God. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the covenant of grace says more than that. For Jesus is God's son. And when we believe on Jesus, we are united to him legally and spiritually. We too become children of God. When we believe on Jesus, we are actually adopted into the divine family. We are not God's children by birth. We are not God's children by right. We do not share in his deity or his divinity. But we really are brought into the very same kind of relationship that God the Father has with Christ his Son. We become true sons and daughters of God. And Mount Hermon, there has never been a father like God. Never has there been a father who loved his children so much nor cared for them so perfectly. Therefore, adopted children, living in the love of our Father, we are now to obey our Father with happy hearts. We now obey God because we love Him as our Father. We now fight sin because we don't want to grieve the heart of the Father who saved us. He has been so good to us. He is being so good to us. He forever will be so good to us. And so we obey him out of joyful confidence that he is caring for us, out of a deep desire to honor him. Throughout history, some have known the great privilege of belonging to a noble family. There have even been those who for a time lived dishonorably, and then they found out, they discovered that they were part of a noble family. And suddenly these people changed their ways. It it meant something when they discovered that they were now of the house of Smith or the, the house of Cornwell. They wanted to walk worthy of this new name. As Christians, we have been brought into the greatest and noblest family of all. We get the privilege of bearing God's name, knowing who we are, knowing who our Father is, knowing whose house we belong to, we now consider it a great joy and honor to live a righteous, dignified, loving, godly life. This is the difference that adoption makes. Our final question. What role does the Spirit have in regards to our adoption? Because you see, it isn't the Spirit who actually adopts us. The New Testament always emphasizes the Father as the member of the Trinity who actually adopts us. But it is the Spirit who gives us, through the Word, the knowledge that we have been adopted. Through the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit inspired. And by giving us understanding, the Holy Spirit teaches our souls about our adoption. And not only that, But the Spirit grants us the faith to believe that we are adopted by God. The Spirit teaches us to rest in this reality. 
more than that. It is the Spirit who causes us to experience the reality of our adoption. For it is the Spirit through the Word who helps us to sense God's fatherly love for us. God is not a physical being. It isn't as if God gives us a hug or pats us on the shoulder or can look at us in a, in a loving way. The Father is not a physical being. We can't experience a physical hug from God. We, we can't experience in this life anyway looking into a physical face. So how do we know the love of our Father? How do we experience it? My sons know what it is to sit in my lap and to be squeezed, right? To have a bear hug. But we don't experience this. Or how do we experience this? From an invisible father. We do so through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words... The Spirit causes us to learn that we've been adopted. The Spirit causes us to believe that we've been adopted. The Spirit causes us to sink our roots deep into the reality that we've been adopted. And as the Spirit does this, the Spirit gives us moments when we are overcome with a real feeling, sense, I am a child of God and my Father loves me. As we encounter the Word, as we hear about the cross, as we study God's providence in our lives, as we look at the sun and the sky, in a million other ways, the Spirit causes us to feel in our souls, my Father cares for me. This is a wonderful experience when it happens. And oh, how we should pray that the Spirit would cause us to know it more and more. We should pray on one level that this would be a constant experience for us that you and I would walk around on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday knowing I am God's, He is mine, I am His child, He is my Father, He is caring for me. What a difference that makes on a Monday to know that. We should pray that we would walk around every moment knowing we were loved by God, that we would lay our heads down to sleep at night in the peace of knowing our Father's love, that we would have a basic sense of this, but we should also pray that the Spirit would give us those special moments when we have a very special sense of God's love. You see, church history is full of the testimonies of men and women of faith who were suddenly overcome by moments of just feeling God's love for them. The saints of old would often talk about journeying from one place to another, walking down the path, walking through the woods, riding on horseback, and they would say, you'll read in their journals, they'll say, we were going from this town to this town, and I was looking at the world around me, and I was talking to my God, and I was meditating on this scripture, and all of a sudden I had this deep inward sense of the love of God for me, and it was so strong I had to stop my journey. I had to sit down for a moment. It was overwhelming. There are stories of people in church history fainting because they were so overcome by a sense of God's love for them. I'm not Pentecostal. Okay? I'm not arguing that kind of thing. But I am saying that there is a very real sense in which Romans 5.5 5 is true. That there are moments when through the word of God, by the Spirit, we really sense to the core of our being, my Father loves me and I am His. 
And you want to know what spurs a child of God on to happy obedience? To keep fighting sin when it is hard? To keep persevering when it would be so easy to just disobey God and go our own way? It is those moments. It is that deep sense. The word of God is true and I am my father's. It is the reality of this love that we are to walk in and live in each day. We are no longer to obey God in slavish fear. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now this is not talking about the reverent fear of God. This is not talking about having a great awe and reverence for God and His character. No, we are always to have that. No, this is talking about a dread of condemnation. This is talking about being full of terror as we think about the great judgment day. That we fear that God will somehow cast us aside and throw us into hell. But the love of God has come to us in Jesus Christ and we experience it as the Spirit works in our lives. No more fear of judgment. I can draw near to God with peace through Christ. And so we obey God in love. We obey God out of the reality that we are His children, that we are precious in His sight. 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. One last thing to say, close this way. The spirit of adoption is something that we have received from God only if we are Christians. It may be that there are some in here who are not. Indeed, I know we have many boys and girls in here who likely have not yet come to faith in Christ. There may be men and women in here who have not yet come to faith in Christ. If you have not yet come to the place of surrendering yourself to Jesus, following Him, this wonderful verse is not true of you. You cannot claim verse 15 for your life. You cannot walk around saying, I am a child of God. No, not in the sense of verse 15. You are still a slave to God's law. You are still under the covenant of works, and if you don't live perfectly, you will find yourself the object of God's wrath in hell forever. And rightly so. And so one meaning of verse 15 for us is this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, run to the Lord Jesus Christ. We only become children of God by being united to the Son of God. If you have not been united to Christ by faith, by throwing yourself on His mercy, I plead with you to do so. Don't depend on yourself. It won't work. Don't try and make yourself right with God. You can't do it. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with God so that you can have peace with him and have him as your father trust Christ show it by turning from your sins show it by being baptized in his name show it by becoming a part of his people in a local church and living a life of following the savior then you will be able to say I am a child of God I have received the spirit of adoption 
and you will be able to obey God with happy, joyful, confident obedience. Amen? Let's pray.